Hey friends, Andy Jenkins here. Thank you for joining me. I'm up at the hilltop in the house and I actually have an empty house again, which is super rare because as you know, there are 10 kids in this family. And even though three of those kids are up and out and live in their own apartments now in college, uh, so that, that leaves, you know, seven, uh, most of those seven bring people over all the time. In fact, uh, I had to make a rule <laughs> that uh, was, uh, it, it was basically this, uh, hey, uh, your friends can come over and they can spend the night. You know, we, we definitely have an open door policy at our house and uh, we even have some of the adults. So some of our, my friends and Beth's friends take us up on that, you know, where they'll, they'll message us via Facebook or text and go, Hey, we're coming through town. Can we come by and, you know, stay at the house or, Hey, I'm, I'm in town for an interview. Can I just come over and meet, you know? And yeah, sure. Come on over. So we want people coming by. Uh, and even as I've said, I, I don't even have a key to my own house. You know, we've got all that's like electronic and doors and all that kind of stuff. So like the only, the only key I ever carry around is if I am driving, I grab a key to one of the cars and whichever one I'm going to drive and I get it and jump in and go. go. And so uh, rule with the kids is, hey, if, if anybody's coming over here, if you guys are going to pull that, we'd love for you to do that, you know, open door. However, we need to know who's here um, so that if parents call or, um, you know, think about if there was a, you know, a disaster, an emergency a fire or something like that. And I just need to know how many people are in the house so I can clear the house. So yeah, I really sometimes um, realize I wouldn't know. So we had to implement, people can stay, people can come, but we've got to know who. And so when you have a house like that, where some weekends there will be uh, a, let's just say population explosion, where you add five or six more kids, or you walk in, uh, to the house after you've gone out for an afternoon run and you come back and go, oh, there's there's two more boys here on the basketball court playing playing ball. Yeah, oh, there's, oh, hey, oh, we've got more people for dinner. <laughs> it drives Beth not, not nuts in a bad way, but just kind of bonkers trying to keep up with it. Uh, you know, thinking, hey, I've dialed it in. She did this the other day and made the dinner and kept it solid, hit it. And then all of a sudden, you know, all these boys come streaming up and the dinner that she had figured out for the family is now gone because people, yet we really love it. And so when I say I'm, I'm in the house alone, uh, that, that is, it's as rare as a blue moon. I mean, it just never happens. We work here, we live here, and we bring all kinds of people in here. Okay, so that's a long intro that has absolutely nothing to do with the topic of the day, yet uh, maybe it just gives you a piece of who we are, what's going on in just kind of the real world while we're teaching something um, that I really believe is going to help you find and fulfill your purpose and make a difference in your world. So for the past several weeks, I've really been sharing with you the audio from uh, some of the, just the life with material. I recorded myself on video, recorded myself literally in front of my computer, just checking the content, checking the slides, making sure it all worked together. And I decided instead of re-recording this, I'm just going to share the audio with you. Now in the previous lesson, 
I said we're not only called to do the things Jesus did, we're called to do them in the same way that he did them. And I gave you this grid, kind of a framework within the life lift framework of power, love, and discipline. Power, love, and self-control using 2 Timothy 1.7. As you walk out your call, walk out your purpose, fulfill the destiny for which you were created, it is going to feel like power because God is going to gift you and empower you to do something that exceeds your human capacity. It's supernatural. It defies logic. Power, love, God is love. And we're called to express his love to other people, even, even when there's correction, even when there's discipline with your kids, even when there is, uh, as you read in the scripture, sometimes you got to rebuke people. You got to correct a sister or brother in love, right? Love, power, love, self-discipline. A lot of people just miss the dream, just fall short of their purpose because of that third one of discipline. Well, we're going to start off with the first. This is, last week was the shortest lesson from the entire Life Lift Framework. This is going to be, right on the heels of that, the longest. And, and I thought about combining them or somehow dividing them, but, but I really just wanted to let them sit on their own. And so right here, I'm going to roll you into the lesson about the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of misinformation about this. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I'm going to talk with you through This is going to provide you with a lot of information. And if you need more, I would just direct you to either book number two about presence or just get the workbook, follow along, access some of the other materials that are right there, all right? So here it is. This is lesson number eight from the Life Lift material, all about living in the presence with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Lean in, learn the lessons. I'll see you in the next one. Hey friends, welcome back. I'm excited to share this lesson with you. We are now in lesson number eight of the Life with Framework. And that really brings us to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might remember in part number two, we said that the best habit that you can develop since you're living out the presence of Christ right now in this world is to develop this habit of living with the constant awareness of God's presence. Now, he said to us, for sure, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. There's, there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from him. Paul even says this in Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, not height, nor depth, nor angels, or principalities, things present, things to come. Anything that's created, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, but somehow we can maybe lose awareness of his nearness, lose awareness of his presence that's close to you. You, you can think of it like this. Uh, right now, there are radio waves going all through this room where I'm at, all, all through the room where you are, and you and I are oblivious to them. But you might not have even thought of it. You probably didn't even think of it until I said it. Now you're thinking, well, wow, wow if I got a radio out and I tuned into that frequency, I could hear everything that's happening. And I really believe that the presence of God is in some way like that. It's always here. It's always near. He's told us, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you, regardless of what you do. But somehow developing that habit of tuning in, it empowers us to access the presence of the kingdom of God so that we can apply that to our own lives 
And then even as important as that is, we can share that with other people who are around us. Now, let me share my slides with you right here. We are in, again, lesson number eight, where we start talking about uh, that outline of, of power, love, and sound mind. And we come to chapter number eight, which is power from above. Here, here's, again, the main idea. The role of the Holy Spirit is an often misunderstood and frightening concept. And I really believe that that's because of how it's presented or misrepresented. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his church so that she, so that the church, the bride, may experience his ongoing presence, so that the church's bride could accomplish his mission, and so that we could experience greater intimacy with him. So in the next few pages of the workbook, we're going to talk about all of these things, and we're really going to, uh, my hope is, bring some freedom uh, to this uh, concept that's so often misunderstood in the church. Here's our outline. Again, remember from part number two of the Life with Framework, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. That's where we're going to land when we start discussing the role of the Holy Spirit, of power, love, and a sound mind. All three of these are important, and I want you to really hang on to this image in your head there. You're going to see this built out over the next few pages of the workbook. We're going to add some words to it. We're going to build some concepts, and we're going to see that really all three of these, all three of the uh, really adjectives that describe the spirit that's been given to us, power, love, and sound mind, or power, love, and self-discipline, they are all essential to living out the call that you have on your life, that I have on my life, and that collectively is the church, is the body of Christ that we have together. Let's, let's start talking about it. Let's go way back to the beginning, and here's what we learn in the New Testament. We learn that Jesus is Here's your answer right there in the workbook. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to be nervous about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is the one who gifts us the Holy Spirit. Now, John the Baptist said that he baptized with water. Uh, everybody was flocking out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist for a baptism of repentance back in that day. But he was very clear. He baptized with water. He even said, I baptize you with water, but there's coming after me one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's the one who's sandal strap. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and, and untie. He, he was speaking of uh, something a servant would do when the servant would stoop down, when a master came into the house, the servant or a visitor would come into the house, the servant would stoop down and untie those sandals and wash that person's feet. So I'm, I'm not even worthy to do that, but, but the one that's coming, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, and yet that's something we never see fulfilled during Jesus's earthly ministry. Um, here's the passage, Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, later on, at the end of his earthly ministry, you know, Jesus dies on the cross. Again, uh, in chapter three, lesson three, we talked about how you were crucified. I was crucified with him. He died. He was buried. You died. You were buried with him. He arose. We arose with him. He walked around on earth for 40 days, and before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples this. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, 
you have heard from me. Now, Jesus is pointing back to John the Baptist, to the verse that we just looked at. John truly baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then the Bible tells us that he ascended up to heaven. He was taken up right before them. And then angels came and said, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you standing around here looking? The same Jesus that came, he will at some point return in the same way. And then we see the disciples in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are there in the upper room. They're praying. They're celebrating the feast of Pentecost. Now, there were in that culture three predominant religious celebrations. The three predominant religious celebrations were the Passover, which happened 50 days before Pentecost, uh, we write a lot about that extensively in book number two uh, that we've titled Presence. You can find a lot of information right there uh, about Pentecost and Passover and how those two relate. So Passover, which was when the Passover lamb was, was sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover. Um, that's also the Passover that occurred uh, when Moses and the children of Israel were, were freed. When Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go, and then the children of Israel made their way uh, through the wilderness to Mount Sinai and arrived at Mount Sinai about 40 days later, and Moses went up the mountain, and that's where he received the law. Now, Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the law, and every year, uh, religious followers uh, devout Jews would gather together during that time of the celebration. They would go to Jerusalem and they would read the law. They would read uh, from uh, Moses and they would read about the Sinai event. They would read passages even from the prophets, from Ezekiel, where God appeared as wind and fire. They would read these passages. And at Pentecost, while they're reading, most likely in the upper room, this all comes to life and it occurs and the Holy Spirit moves in. Now, everyone begins speaking in other tongues. I believe those were foreign languages because in that passage, uh, the crowd comes and says, how is it we hear these people declaring in our own languages? And if you read the language there, you read the text, it says Parthians and Medes and Eliamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Pamphylia, those from Egypt, all coming together here people speaking. Here, the disciples, the 120 who were in the upper room, declaring the works of God in their own foreign languages. And Peter stands up and he says, these aren't drunk as you suppose. This is exactly what was prophesied in Joel 2, 28, 32, that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he has poured out this that you now see in here. This is uh, what we would refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't, don't be afraid of that term. We're going to come back. We're going to discuss it uh, multiple times, but that is the term that we see through Scripture. So I, I don't want to just toss the term. I want to maybe look at the term in the way that we see it presented all throughout the Bible. Now, here's what Peter says. You see it as a labeled at the bottom in Acts 2.17 and in Joel 2.28. He's He's just quoting the Old Testament there. He says that it, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Will pour it out. And so he continues preaching. He says, therefore, being exalted the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus poured out this which you now see 
He poured out this, which you now hear. That is, I believe, what occurs at Pentecost is, let me just use this term again, and we're going to talk about why I think it's a good term, even if it's been mislabeled, if it's been misrepresented, mischaracterized, even if it's created some anxiety, some nervousness, some tension, I believe it's a good term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. I don't want you, main idea, to fear a term that's been used in scripture. I would like to redeem the term and use it in a beneficial manner. Okay, so let's let's do that. Let's use it in a constructive way. Uh, when I was in seminary uh, years ago, that was uh, two decades ago. Goodness can believe that. I learned about this principle that was a safe way to study called the checking principle. Now, the checking principle was this. A wise professor of mine, he told me, he said, hey, God is probably not going to share with you a new idea that somebody in Christendom has not seen in 2,000 years. He's most likely going to share with you something that's new, that's fresh, that's insightful, that you can apply to your life. But as you look through the strain of the river of Christianity, you're probably going to find people to whom he said similar things. And so the checking principle was, hey, go dive into the scripture on your own. Go pray on your own and see what you feel that the Holy Spirit is showing you. See what you feel Jesus is showing you in the text, what the Father is revealing to you. But then go check it against Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox meaning just right thinking, just the stack pole, the plumb line of what saints throughout history have said is true. Go check it against that. See what others have said. And that's going to lead you to a really safe place. So again, here it is. Read the text for yourself. Determine what you think the Holy Spirit reveals. And then read other commentaries. Go see what the Holy Spirit has already taught your brothers and sisters in Christ, even brothers and sisters in Christ who have been decades, centuries ahead of you. And that really leads you to a place of safety. So let's do that. Here's what I propose to do. Years ago, when I was first preaching through the book of Acts, first preaching through uh, the book of First Corinthians. I'm bumping up against things, just teaching verse by verse that really didn't match my experience with the text. And so uh, this is really what I did. I, I started reading. Uh, well, I think it says this. Uh, I think it says that maybe healing is for today. I think that it's saying this about the Holy Spirit, but I'm, but I'm not sure. So what I did is I started reading what others had written, uh, reading what some of the uh, heroes of our faith. Again, sometimes generations ahead of me, sometimes uh, farther, you know, decades ahead of me had said, I started meeting with other uh, leaders and pastors in our area, just face to face to see what they said. And, and here's what I came to. I, I assumed I would find a lot of disagreement on the role of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was just the opposite. On the surface, it seems that we're really far apart, but when I got into it, uh, what a lot of people said about the normal Christian life seemed to have a lot of agreement. So let's do that. Let's look and see what others have said about the Holy Spirit and the normal, and use that in quotes, the normal Christian life. Uh, Bill Bright, Bill Bright led Campus Crusade uh, for Christ, and uh, Bill Bright was really the man who was instrumental behind the Jesus film that was 
uh, popular about two decades ago. He said this, we cannot successfully live the Christian life in our own strength. Bill Bright, by the way, was responsible, some people say, for taking the gospel to upwards of perhaps a billion people through his ministries. I mean, just phenomenal numbers. He says, we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. The Father has sent the Holy Spirit to empower us, and we are commanded, now notice this word he uses right there, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Bill Bright died in 2003. Uh, Andrew Murray is uh, another author. I saw him on multiple pastor shelves. Uh, Andrew Murray, I believe, is from Scotland, and and his family were involved in the missionary enterprises, and he knew that they were going to need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to take the task of world evangelism, world evangelism to reality. Now, at that time, Scotland was steeped in rationalism, just kind of intellectual belief, which, which might you know, really kind of sounds a lot like the church today in some respects. And, and so he started really kind of wading through that. He's got a lot of devotional materials, a lot of devotional books. He says this, the one thing needed for the church in its search for spiritual excellence is to be filled with the spirit of God. God waits to give us this blessing. What's the blessing? The blessing is the filling with the spirit of God. And in our faith, we may expect it with greatest confidence. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who's from the Presbyterian tradition, uh, writes this, people were believers and thus born of the Spirit prior to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This indicates that there must be a distinction between the Spirit's work of regeneration, that's the Spirit's work of salvation, and the Spirit's work in baptizing. Now, now notice, a lot of these leaders have talked about salvation and then a filling of the Spirit, or salvation, or God doing something additional that he waits to give to us. And here, um, R.C. Sproul is writing about the book of Acts, and he says there must be a distinction between the work of regeneration, it's the work of salvation, and then the work of baptizing, that, that unique thing that Jesus did. He goes on. Notice this point number two, there's a time gap between faith, that's regeneration, and the Holy Spirit baptism, this clearly indicates that while some Christians have the Holy Spirit to the, to the degree that they are regenerate, they may still lack the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is subsequent. Now, what I want you to see right there is that he's talking about two different uh, encounters there, two different ideas. Virtually all Christian denominations have agreed that there is a vast difference between the Holy Spirit's work and regeneration though all do not fully agree on the understanding of regeneration. Now, some uh, denominations might say, well, you have to be baptized to be saved. Some might say, well, uh, you could be baptized as an infant, and they use the parents' faith to really bring them into salvation. My, my point right here is not to argue those ideas. Uh, my, my point here, uh, in fact, I, I would argue for believer's baptism, that you uh, awaken to faith on your own, um, so again, not to argue the, the other points, just to tell you where, where I stand growing up in the Baptist tradition is my background. Uh, there he, but notice he's saying they don't all agree on generation, um, but all denominations have agreed that there's a vast difference between the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration and the Holy Spirit's work of baptism. He, he notes that everybody sees those as essentially two different events. That is the difference abides in the understanding of regeneration, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is agreement that whatever each entails, each 
that is regeneration, salvation, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, each one of those is different from the other. Here's a, a man, no doubt you've heard of, Billy Graham, um, the great evangelist that filled stadiums all across the U.S., even, even around the world. He writes this in his book titled The Holy Spirit. I think it is proper to say that anyone who is not spirit-filled is a defective Christian. That, that's his term. Paul's command to the Ephesian church, be filled with the spirit, is binding on all of us Christians everywhere in every age. There are no exceptions. We must conclude that since we are ordered to be filled with the spirit, and, and, and notice he's using that word. He's not using the word baptism. He's using the word filled. Since we are ordered to be filled with the spirit, we are sinning if we're not filled. And our failure to be filled with the spirit constitutes one of the greatest sins against the Holy Spirit. Now, years ago, I read a book uh, entitled The Word and Power Church by a pastor by the name of Doug Bannister. And in his own uh, story, he says that he grew up with a very head-centered, a very word-centered type of faith, uh, so much so that really they didn't trust uh, experience. And he really locked that side of himself off Later in life, in his uh, 30s and early 40s, he really had this encounter where he began to be open to both sides. And he said, hey, I really think that a thriving whole Christianity, it includes both. It doesn't negate the word for the spirit. It doesn't negate the spirit for the word. A fully developed disciple actually sees a synthesis and brings together both of these. And he talks about these in his book, the Word and Power Church. He writes this, I'm convinced that the great majority of the middle-of-the-road evangelicals, now that's uh, most believers, in other words, and charismatics, he says, basically, I believe that they believe the same thing about the work of the Holy Spirit. We merely use different words to describe how the Spirit works in our lives. He says, some of us use the word baptism. Some of us use the word filling. What he's saying is, I, I really think that we probably align more than, than what we give ourselves credit for. Now, in the book, he starts quoting, and he starts doing this checking principle, and he looks all throughout church history, and here's what he finds. This, these are all sourced from him in that book, The Word and Power Church, which I really believe, uh, if you're interested in taking a deeper dive on this, is an extremely helpful book. North Africa, North Africa third century the theologian Tertullian teaches that the Holy Spirit is received after conversion, not at conversion. Now, now, I believe that the Holy Spirit comes at conversion, but notice right here, he's saying that the Holy Spirit comes through prayer and the laying on of hands. Now, we're going to look at that idea through the book of Acts uh, throughout this material in part two. Uh, Asia, the 10th century, Simeon, the new theologian, he describes in the third person his encounter with the Holy Spirit. Now, Simeon wrote this. One day, a flood of divine radiance had appeared from above and filled the room. He was wounded by love. He's talking about himself. So you could just say, I was wounded by love and I was wounded by desire for God. Oblivious of all the world, he or I was filled with tears and ineffable joy and gladness. Some exquisite encounter. Another one. In Italy, 15th century, Savonarola was a monk with a heart to reform the church. 
uh, much as Martin Luther later did. Savonarola begins preaching stirring messages on coming judgment of God. Very few people responded. And then one day while speaking with a nun, he had a vision. From that moment on, after that vision, his biographer writes and tells us that he was filled with new unction and power, and his preaching was now with a voice of thunder, and his denunciation of sin was so terrific that the people who listened to him sometimes went about the streets half-dazed. So all of a sudden, this new empowerment comes upon him, and he's able to more readily, more freely do the thing that God had called him to do. Uh, England, 16th century. This is a, a group that you, you know about. The Puritans teach the doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit as a distinct work that happens. Now, notice this, after conversion, not as part of conversion, but, but after. The Puritan divine, Thomas Goodwin, he writes in his commentary uh, on Ephesians 1.13, here's the quote, that the work of faith is a distinct thing a different thing from the work of assurance. Now, what is the work of faith? The work of the faith is salvation. And he says there's this different assurance, this different connection, this different relationship that happens later on. Goodwin describes this second work as the electing love of God brought home to his soul. Uh, a, a few more quotes. And again, the idea here is just to show you, hey, I, I think all throughout history, different saints, our brothers and sisters of Christ have said, hey, you know, there's, there's more here that we just don't quite understand. And so often, you know, you and I want to fit God in a box. And what we're seeing right here is, is really you can't. And even though these brothers and sisters in the faith use different language, we're starting to see the idea that there is this work of salvation and there is this work of filling, or there is this work of salvation. There is this work of baptism. There is this work of salvation. There is this secondary thing that comes. Okay, so England, 18th century, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, uh, the Methodist church, he teaches that every believer should expect two distinct experiences in their sanctification. He calls the second experience a second blessing. You might have heard that terminology before. Uh, another one, uh, England, 19th century, the higher life movement, it grows rapidly. It began making popular uh, movements by the Keswick Conventions of the 1870s, uh, leading Bible teachers that you might recognize some of these names, R.A. Torrey or D.L. Moody, Andrew Murray, we've quoted him before, F.B. Meyer. They all taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've highlighted it there, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary crisis experience. That means it's kind of this overwhelming, hey, are we sure? And then it leads you to something beautiful. It's a crisis experience empowering the believer, that's you, that's me, for service. Uh, Tori, who was uh, one of Moody's disciples, one of the people that he led, writes in his book uh, titled The Baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, separate and distinct from his regenerating work, or, or to say it a different way, this is the work of the Holy Spirit separate and distinct from salvation. Uh, in Chicago, uh, Dwight Moody in the 19th century, who founded Moody Bible Church and Moody Bible Institute, he writes that two months before his death in 1899, he's, he's just kind of writing a, a biographically, looking back, he says, there are two epics in my life that stand out clear. One is when I was between 18 and 19 years old, when I was born of the Spirit. That's salvation. The greatest blessing next to being born again. So he emphatically says salvation is the key. 
That's the more important issue. He said, so, so next to that, the greatest blessing was that, but next to being born again, 16 years later, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, we've seen the word baptism. Uh, we've seen the term second blessing. Here we again see the word filled with the Holy Spirit. Let, let me give you one more quote right here. Um, or England, the 20th century, uh, one of the most surprising uh, spokesman for a second work teaching is the great British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He served at London's Westminster Chapel for 25 years, uh, and you would think that would be a really head-centered tradition, uh, yet uh, Lloyd-Jones, he's an author, again, that appears on a lot of Baptist, pastors' bookshelves. He ha had a major influence on evangelicals, yeah, when he opened up the scripture, he saw a baptism in the Holy Spirit that was distinct from conversion also. So he writes this, you can be regenerate, a child of God, a true believer, and still not have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, the idea here is just to get you thinking larger, to thinking bigger. And as we go into the book of Acts, I want to highlight four truths that you're going to see that describe our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Four truths that we're going to see, again, now in light of just kind of what we've seen from our brothers in the faith. Um, here's number one. You are given the Holy Spirit at conversion when you are sealed with the Spirit, okay? Fact number one of four is that you are given the Holy Spirit at conversion when you are sealed with the Spirit. Here's, here's the verse from Ephesians 1.13, in him also. When you heard the word of truth, that's the gospel, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I remember being a young leader in a church, and I had a man that continued coming up to me every Sunday, and he would say, just about every week, the Lord told me to tell you that you need the Holy Spirit, that you don't have the Holy Spirit. And what he was really trying to get me to connect with was this idea that I needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he was using the language to infer that I didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not yet in me. Yet here in Scripture, I want to show you this. Again, at salvation, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit when you are a Christian? Absolutely, yes. The Holy Spirit moves into your life. You become, as other passages say, one with the Holy Spirit. Yet, yet here's the reality, and here's what I think that man didn't latch on to, is there's also more of the Holy Spirit that's available after conversion. There's also more of the Holy Spirit available even after that salvation encounter. Now, in Luke 24, 45 through 49, here's what Luke writes is happening in the upper room. Now, you might remember, this is the story that we talked about lessons ago when the two from the road to Emmaus ran back to tell the disciples that Jesus had been walking with them for that seven miles and opened up the scripture. And then while they're there with the disciples, with Mary Magdalene, behind locked doors, Jesus appears to them all. Luke writes, who, by the way, was probably in the upper room right then. Luke writes, and he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now notice what happens next. 
Jesus continued talking. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on there. Jesus appears to them. They believe in him. He shows them his hands. He gives them understanding from the scripture. He shows them proofs that he's resurrected, that he's not alive. This is all the things that happen at the salvation encounter when we believe, which is the time when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yet Jesus says right there, I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. When does the Holy Spirit come? The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now, it looks like we've got a very tidy package right there, but notice this, because Jesus has just said, remember, point number two, there's more of the Holy Spirit available even after the salvation encounter. Notice what John writes, and John was up there in the same room when Luke was there. He's talking about the same event, and he's giving in his gospel his recollection of what happened in the upper room, and John writes that when Jesus said this, he didn't say, wait for the promise of the Father, wait in Jerusalem until you're given power from on high. He says that when Jesus said all of this, he breathed on them and then said, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so let's, let's compare the two. John 20, 22, same event. John says that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. But Luke says that Jesus said, bold print, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Luke says, Jesus said to wait. John says, Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. What is happening right here? And I, I think that this is maybe where we can start pulling things together and saying, hey, so scripture has a lot of things that you and I just agree to hold in tension. Uh, there are things that we don't see as contradictions, even though they might seem like that at first. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the lion and he's the lamb. We believe that Jesus is the alpha and he's the omega. We believe that Jesus is the first and the last. We believe he's the king of all things, and he's also the servant. We believe that he's crucified, yet he's risen we believe, I think, that John says that the Holy Spirit moves in at conversion, at the work of salvation, at the work of regeneration. And we also believe, as Luke says, that Jesus says, hey, you have the Holy Spirit, but wait for the empowerment. In other words, we can believe and hold intention that both of these leaders in the early church, both of these beloved followers of Jesus, both of these people who, who wrote scripture, who convey to us the reality of what Jesus came and did, that both of these can be right, that the Holy Spirit simultaneously moves into you when you become a Christian, and there's more wait for the full empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Let's put our ideas together of four truths that we're conveying. Number one, you are given the Holy Spirit at conversion when you are sealed with the Spirit. Number two, there's more of the Holy Spirit that's available even after the salvation encounter. And that leads me to point number three. Most people don't wait for, most people don't pursue the more which is available for us. Let me show you some numbers, some stats here from scripture. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Jesus was seen, according to Paul, by over 500 people at one time post-resurrection. Now, that does not include uh, Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb with the other women. That does not include the two on the road to Emmaus. That does not include the disciples that he appeared to and everybody else that might have been in the upper room. Certainly, a lot of these people were probably there with that 500, but he appeared to multiple people, including 500 at one time. Yet, according to Acts 1, 15, there was a group of 120, not 500, in the upper room. In other words, uh, less than 25% actually waited and pursued that more. Now, Paul cautioned Timothy about a day to come when the church would have a form of godliness, but lack the supernatural power. And, and you kind of might look and say, hey, that, that, might, that might describe where we are today, when we just make religion, when we just make our faith about the form, the rules, uh, make our faith about the ritual, the routine, instead of the relationship and the overflow of the power. Okay, so point number one of four, four truths we see. You're given the Holy Spirit at conversion when you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Point number two, there's more of the Holy Spirit available even after this encounter. Point number three, most people don't wait for or pursue that more which is available. That leads us to point number four, that those additional encounters with the Holy Spirit, they are available. And understanding what Pentecost is, really, that helps us frame that experience. Okay, understanding what Pentecost is is, was, helps us frame the experience. Now, I alluded to this earlier. In the Bible, we see three predominant biblical feasts. These, according to the Old Testament, were to be celebrated for all time. These are ones where every devout Jewish uh, person would make the pilgrimage if they can. Uh, they would go for the Passover, and they would celebrate at the Passover freedom from slavery in Egypt. Uh, you know that Jesus becomes our Passover lamb, and Jesus frees us in the same way that the children of Israel were free from slavery. In fact, I've got a book. You can download it absolutely free. I'll put a link below. It's the book Redemption, where we compare the Exodus event to what Jesus came to do in the blood of Jesus and how that supplies something ongoing for us. Again, download that book absolutely free and kind of read that as a sideline to everything that you're doing right now. Pentecost celebrates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, remember, after they left the Passover, uh, they went through the Red Sea, and then they traveled straight to the mountain. Now, now, Mount Horeb is the mountain where Moses was originally called, and he said, God said when he appeared in the burning bush, here's the sign. You're going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and then I'm going to bring you back with all the people, and you're going to come right back here, and you and all these people are going to worship me at this mountain. And that's where he went up, and that's where uh, the Lord appeared to him and gave him the law written on two tablets of stone, the Decalogue, 10 words there, 10 commandments. The Hebrew language is really efficient. It was just 10 words that were right there written on that law. And you might remember, this is uh, really insightful, that at, at that first event, at the giving of the law, the people came near the mountain, and 3,000 people died. Um, they, they got too close, uh, and then they did some things that they should not do and, and broke out in idol worship and the golden calf. And at Pentecost, 3,000 people come to salvation. 
And so there's this giving of the law and then the giving of the spirit. And, and I would say you shouldn't see the law as something that was legalistic. They celebrated the law. In fact, in Jesus's day, they would actually dance around the synagogue uh, before they read the law. And they would celebrate the law because God had spoken and God had cared enough to give them words of life. In fact, they referred to the Torah as the way, the truth, and the life. And when Jesus came, he was saying, like, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've come to show you what it looks like to live a relationship with God. I've come to show you how these words matter. I've come to show you how this brings connection to your heavenly father. And then, then they had the Feast of Tabernacles. They would celebrate this once a year where the booths and shelter that they had in the wilderness, the children of Israel would once again, even when they were living in the promised land, uh, during about a week period, they would go live in tents. And even now you'll see some of these tents and huts made upon balconies and in backyards. They would go live in these to remember that thousands of years ago that their ancestors had lived in the wilderness and God provided for them. They still had food to eat. Their, their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes, they didn't outgrow them. They didn't, they didn't run through holes in the soles of the feet that somehow God had provided for them. By the way, all of these pointed to Jesus. And the tabernacles, uh, some would say, well, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What, what many scholars believe is that this tabernacles event has not yet been fulfilled. That Passover was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. That Pentecost was fulfilled with the coming of the Spirit. That tabernacles is still yet to be fulfilled in the future when Jesus comes and dwells, according to Revelation 21-22, comes and dwells and lives among his people. When we understand these feasts, we start seeing what's going on, what's happening in the bigger picture of God. Now, again, here's a comparison of Sinai and Pentecost. Sinai, it happened 40 days after the Red Sea, and then Moses went up the mountain. Pentecost, Jesus appeared to the disciples 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascended. He went up, and now they wait. Uh, there were manifestations on the mountain, fire, wind. They're very similar to what we see in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people die at Sinai, 3,000 people are saved and come to new life at Pentecost. Here's a review of those four points that we just talked through about the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit moves in at conversion. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit moves into your life at conversion. But, it, but as we've seen, there's more available even after that, even though most people, point number three, don't wait for that more. And then what I'm saying is the Pentecost encounter is available to you. The Pentecost encounter, it is available to me. And that was point number four. Again, additional encounters with the Holy Spirit are available. The Pentecost encounter is available to you. Well, all of that said, and soon uh, we'll go through the book of Acts. In fact, in the next lesson, we're going to walk all through uh, the book of Acts and start talking uh, about it. Three reasons the Holy Spirit comes to us and continues coming to us are these. Number one, the Holy Spirit creates greater focus on Jesus, not increased focus on the Holy Spirit. So if you're at a church and they start emphasizing the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of Jesus, somehow you just know right there they've gotten it backwards. Okay, John 14, 26, Jesus says, "Is the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. 
and he will bring to you remembrance of all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit is reminding us and is highlighting, not the Holy Spirit himself, but is highlighting Jesus. Notice this. Again, we said that the Holy Spirit creates increased intimacy with Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. This verse right here, Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, it's that greater focus. It's that greater connection with Jesus. In fact, I might say it like this. is salvation. The Holy Spirit comes to us and the Holy Spirit moves in us. It brings this internal change. It brings this connection where we're aware of Jesus, where we think about Jesus, where we ponder Jesus. Uh, even in that moment, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control, all of those start flooding into us. Uh, point number two is this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just highlight Jesus. The Holy Spirit also provides power for witness. The Holy Spirit provides power to tell and share and demonstrate to others about Jesus. And this is what leads me to think that baptism is really a visually enlightening word to describe what the Holy Spirit does at this point. Let me, let me tell you why I get that. Um, Peter, after this encounter with the Holy Spirit, so the second encounter, the subsequent encounter, Peter transformed from a weak man who denied Christ to a teenage servant girl into a bold preacher who, in an upper room prayer meeting, led people, and then proclaimed the gospel such that 3,000 people were saved. Okay, okay so see that. He's uh, this preacher who takes on and just weaves together the Old Testament scripture and proclaims the gospel to 3,000 people who weren't coming to hear the gospel. They were there really questioning what was happening, and we can see this. Uh, I've highlighted the scriptures there for you where you can look up and read more about his story, and you can do that, of course, in lesson number two where we really talk more in detail about him. Paul, after his encounter, the scripture says this, he grew more and more powerful according to Acts 9.22. Uh, throughout the New Testament, we read this in Acts 14.11, that the local people there said that the gods had come down to them after they saw the healing of a crippled man. Now, I, I used to read that, and I would think, well, goodness, the people were really wayward if they thought that gods had come down. I mean, goodness, this was this was uh, Paul uh, traveling, and, and he heals a man, and they think it's the gods. But really, I think when we see that, there was such power present that they had no other explanation other than this probably was the gods. This is why they said that the world had been turned upside down, like something was radically changed because of the power that was present such that according to Acts chapter 515, people were healed by passing shadows and they would learn where Peter was going to be on his daily routine and, and they would just set the sick and lame and impaired there so that when he walked by a shadow would fall upon them and they would be healed. The environment would shift that much because of the power of the Holy Spirit that exuded off of him. It said that they would pass handkerchiefs uh, and clothing that Paul had touched and that people would be healed by coming in contact with a thing, according to Acts 19.11, that he had touched. This was power that was there. And, and here, again, I, I think the word baptism right there is visually enlightening. You see, when somebody comes out of the baptistry by water, we dunk them in the water and they come out, just like we highlighted in lesson number three. That image that shows the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the death, burial, and future resurrection of 
saints who died before us, the death, burial, and resurrection, the new life of us in the moment. When somebody comes out of the baptistry, they are wet, they are drenched, and if you go touch them, you're going to become wet because the water now is not inside of them. That water is outside of them, and, and I think this gives us a great imagery because the salvation encounter I really think with the Holy Spirit, it, it does this. It brings about the Holy Spirit moving inside of you. There's an internal change, and it facilitates the fruit of the Spirit. Now, for sure, people come in contact with you, and they're going to see, they're going to sense, they're going to feel that difference. But the subsequent encounters, the Holy Spirit comes on you. There's this external change. There's this new empowerment. The gifts of the Spirit are there. And it's just like somebody uh, coming in contact with someone who's just freshly out of the baptismal water pool, that if you've just been baptized in water, they're going to get wet. If you've just had this encounter with the Holy Spirit, they're going to see, sense, and feel the Holy Spirit on you. Here's where it becomes important, too, because if our Christianity lacks power, if our faith lacks power, we may have a cell mind, we might have discipline, we might have love, but it really looks like just good morality. It looks like good, nice church people, and you and I have been called to something bigger, something stronger, something that changes the world. Paul wrote this to Timothy, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of the good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And that sounds like our culture. But notice what Paul lumps into this. And he says, they will also have a form of godliness, but deny the power of godliness. From such people, turn away. Now notice right there, turn away from the ones that all the other lists would say, yeah, for sure. But, but he, he warns Timothy about people that have a form of godliness, but deny the power of godliness. He warns them about people who are boastful, proud, arrogant, slanderers, uh, backbiting, all, all of the kind of the junk drawer of sin that we would label. But he says also, be leery of people who have this morality behavior only, who have the form of godliness, but deny the power. And here's what I, here's what I see kind of as we kind of synthesize these, as we bring them together. At conversion, Jesus becomes your Lord. But in that subsequent encounter, and let's just label it what it is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the term that we see in scripture. Let's just really use it. And he really empowers me to witness and proclaim that he is Lord. So I get to share it with others. Conversion is really about me. My life changes. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's really right here for ministry. And now I help others change. My primary change at conversion is internal. It's seen by others. But when the secondary encounter comes, it's external. And that's why I think that baptism, that water, that wet outside of you image is so powerful. In addition to that, my character changes. I have a new nature with conversion, right? The fruit of the Spirit moves in. But with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, my ministry changes. I experience God's power, and now I can share that and express that to other people because the Holy Spirit works at conversion, 
and brings the fruit of the Spirit into my life, but at the baptism, he brings the gifts of the Spirit into my life. My relationship with God shifts. I, I know God with conversion. I've come in contact. I've mentally assented. I believe, and I know him, but now with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the secondary encounter, I make him known to other people. The encounter is, con is characterized by a conversion, peace with God. At the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's encountered uh, and characterized by power from God. And here, here's the reason why. Conversion is because Jesus came down and lived among us. He walked among us. And now we start modeling what he did and how he did it, as we discussed in a previous lesson. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that occurs not just because Jesus came down and died, but the baptism occurs because Jesus resurrected and then he ascended. And when he ascended, he poured out that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is a person who now moves close to us. I would say this finally, uh, here's the third point. And again, let's just review. The first one is the Holy Spirit creates greater focus on Jesus, not on the Holy Spirit. The second is the Holy Spirit provides power for witness. So baptism is a great word. The third point, I really think the Holy Spirit facilitates greater intimacy with God. Now, here's where I get that. At Pentecost, you see Peter cast lots to decide who is going to replace uh, Judas, who killed himself, uh, hung himself, and they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was number one of the 12, and a lot of people say he jumped the gun, and they should have waited for Paul, but the reality is throughout scripture, there are multiple apostles, even after Paul, and others even during the time of Paul, but, but I want you to notice this. This is a new trend we see after Pentecost. It says that the Lord tells Ananias, Ananias is a man who went and got Paul on the road to Damascus and then took care of him for three days. The Lord spoke to Ananias. Later on, instruction was given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 13, to go to Cornelius' home when uh, the leaders from the delegation came for him, uh, whom, by the way, Cornelius was told to send for that delegation. Uh, the Lord in Acts chapter 13 tells the church which leaders he wants them to send on a mission trip. In, in other words, there is this idea that the Lord now speaks. Remember, Jesus said, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. That goes up an increased level. Even though Jesus is gone physically, that goes up a heightened level with this encounter, this secondary encounter, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the subsequent encounters, again, the Holy Spirit comes on you. There's an external change, and the gifts of the Spirit now come in. And what I'm encouraging you to do now is to embrace everything that God has for us, everything, even if we don't understand it. Embrace it, let's walk in it, and let's realize that we have some safeguards, that God's Word is a safeguard, that we can look and see what God has already clearly said. That is a safe place for us that God's spirit, that the internal witness is going to match what he's already said in the scripture. Those two things, the spirit and the word, the spirit inspired the word, as we'll talk about in several lessons from now, those are going to be in agreement, in alignment. We also have common sense that tells us, hey, what is the wise thing to do here? And then we have circumstances. We don't want to be controlled by those, but we do want to live present to where we are. 
And then we also have competent counsel. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before us as we discussed with the checking principle. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are, are diving into prayer, who are reading the scripture, who are walking in relationship with us, whom we're bouncing these ideas off. All of these really create this safe place where we can learn, where we can grow, and we can seek intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Here's what else I would encourage you to do. If you're wanting to learn more about this, if you'll grab book number two, and if you'll go in here, there's going to be this place right here in chapter number eight, where we talk about power from above. If you look at chapter number eight, and I'll write this down in the notes there below where I have the link to you for uh, everything that we'll discuss uh, with the redemption book and how you can learn about the blood of Jesus and the freedom from Egypt and the freedom that Jesus now offers in this book, we walk through every instance where the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to use that term, occurs all throughout the book of Acts. And in that, you're going to see in chapters 8 right here and in chapter 9, how in every single encounter, they're all different. Sometimes they laid hands on people. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes people spoke in tongues. Other times they didn't. Sometimes there were a multitude of people, 3,000 people there. Sometimes there were just a few people, a handful of people there. In other words, there's no formula. There's no box that we could create. There's no thing where we can say, hey, it's one size fits all. But we do clearly see that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to you at salvation. If you have said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. In him we live and move and breathe and have our being, to quote Paul in the book of Acts. Also, at the same time, there is more that's available. And when we step into that more, which some people call a baptism. Some people call it a filling. When we step into that more, we are free to better express the Jesus who gave himself for us. We're free to highlight Jesus, not highlight the Holy Spirit. We're free to walk in intimacy with him at a greater level. And we're also empowered to live out the call that he has on our life. That's it for this lesson. Join me again in the next lesson. We're going to talk not about power, but we're going to shift and talk about that second facet, power, love, using the grid of power, love, and self-control. I'll see you in the next lesson.